we're going to be in the end of Genesis. We're going to be reading 49, 29 through 50, 14. And then we're going to skip a few verses and continue with verses 22 through the end of the chapter at 50. Genesis 49, starting at verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave in the field at Machpelah, in the cave of Mamre, or in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days for weeping were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewn out for myself, in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore let me go, please, and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up, from, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place is named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field at Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with, bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now continuing on in verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, 
God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Well, we finally made it. We've made it to the end of Genesis. 50 chapters, 80-something sermons later, and at last we see the, the last period at the last sentence of the final verse. And maybe it's just me. I don't want to project this onto you, but there's always a sort of satisfaction I feel when we come to the end of an exposition of a particular book of the Bible, especially the ones um, in which we've invested multiple years of study. There's always something kind of satisfying uh, in reaching the end. But then again, and I think I've shared something similar to you uh, with you before along these lines about how I'm feeling. There's, There's also a little sadness too. You know, when you're nearing the end of a story that you're just really into, that's the case for me with Genesis. And my son Jonathan had this experience this very week. The family was watching uh, Mary Poppins Returns, and he was totally into it. I mean, he was captivated by it. He kept asking Jamie, who uh, had charge of the remote, if she could pause it so that he could, he could see the progress bar or the scrubber, I don't know what you want to call it. You know, the thing that shows you how much time is left? And Johnny didn't want the movie to be over, so he, he kept wanting to make sure that there was still some, some time left, that that slider wasn't too close to the end. And, uh, you know, the poor kid got a, a crash course in how long it takes for credits to roll. He, he's like, wait, I thought we had... Get used to it, kid. (laughs) And then you've got these stories that at the end leave you both satisfied and unsatisfied in equal proportion. Where, Where, you know, you're nearing the end of a book or a program and you just know that there's not nearly enough pages or time to resolve all that needs resolving. And your suspicions are confirmed when you come across those three wonderful words strung together to form one of the most hopeful phrases in the English language, which is to be continued, dot, dot, dot. That little phrase lets you know that there's another book coming that there's another episode, that there's more to this story. Even though it looks like it's over, it's not really over. And maybe the best is yet to come. And I want you to just observe, hopefully you can see just right off the bat, how hopeful that is. Just think about your own story. Think about your own situation, what you find yourself in today. Isn't it encouraging for you to know that that story isn't over yet. You may be in the middle of a pretty difficult installment, but but there's more to be written. It's not over. You You shouldn't put a period there. It's more appropriate, at least in your mind, that you would have a dot, dot, dot. 
In the same way, I realize that at the end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 26, I recognize that there's a period there. But I personally think it would be better if it would be a dot, dot, dot. Because this is not the end of the story. This is a to-be-continued situation. And think about how Genesis ends up versus where it began. If we can kind of just step back and look at the big picture, where we started and where we end up here in Genesis, it begins with life and it ends with death. You know, so our passage today deals with the deaths of both Jacob and Joseph. So Genesis starts with a garden and it ends up with a couple of graves. You can't read about death and graves in Genesis, or anywhere for that matter, but especially in Genesis, without understanding their connection to sin and to the curse. As Romans chapter 5 verse 12 explains, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all man because all sinned. And finishing this book with funerals, which is what Moses does here, really serves to underscore that point, I think. It really serves to highlight the truth that the wages of sin is death. But surely death can't be given the last word, can it? I mean, we're not going to let death have the final say. How, can, how sad it would be to have a period after Joseph died and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. There is a period there, but it's sad. This, this story has to continue. Please let this story continue. And indeed it does. E even though there, there actually technically isn't uh, to be continued, appended to the finish, there are plenty of clues in this passage that indi indicate that this story is going to continue. Moreover, uh, we see Jacob and Joseph, even on their deathbeds, acting in light of that continuation. They have faith that's fueled by a future. That's what I want to propose to you. And, and this is good because if you're here today, if you're looking for faith refueling, if I could put it that way, then, then this, I think, will be a passage for us. Let, let me show you four signposts that kind of point the way to the future. These are indicators of the fact that this story is not over, that it is to be continued. And the first of these signposts is an empty cave. An empty cave. We can see this in back in chapter 49, Verses 29 to 33. Well, let's just start out with cave. I'll circle back to the empty part in just a few minutes. But I'm referring to the cave that is in Machpelah, um, east of Mamre, which is also called Hebron, in the land of Canaan. I'm talking about the cave that's in the, the corner of the field that belonged to Ephron, the Hittite, that 
Abraham purchased from him to be a burial place for his family. And just remind yourself of of that incident, uh, that occurrence way back a number of chapters. What was the most important factor for this particular piece of real estate? Well, it's like it always is. Location, location, location. As Jacob says in chapter 49, verse 30, and as Joseph repeats to Pharaoh in chapter 50, verse 5, the key thing, that the most important thing about this acquisition is that this cave is in the land of Canaan. In the land of Canaan. Why Canaan? Well, because that's the land that God promised to give to Abraham and to his offspring as an inheritance. This is the land of promise. And in his lifetime, Abraham had not taken possession of that promised land. Neither had his son Isaac. And now Jacob, even though he had kind of sojourned through it for a time, he had spent the last 17 years in Egypt. But notice that he's adamant that when he dies, that he be returned to the land of promise and that he be laid to rest with his fathers in the ancestral cave. This cave was exceedingly important to him. And you can see how important this was for Jacob. Verse 29 is actually the second time that that he makes his sons swear that they would carry out his wishes. The first time, that was back in chapter 47. And there he made Joseph doubly swear to fulfill this same command. So this is like, I don't know, triple, triple stamping uh, this, this pledge that he's going to, uh, that the sons are going to make sure that Jacob ends up in this cave in Canaan. So why, why is this so important for Jacob? Most people don't care. You know, I've been in lots of conversations with people and You know, I've heard lots of people say things like, ah, just throw me in a cardboard box. You know, what will I care? Why does Jacob care so much? Well, he cares so much because of what this cave in Canaan communicates. Have you noticed that burial places actually do communicate things? I don't know if you've ever walked through Greenmount Cemetery or some of the other cemeteries that we have in our area. It's really a fascinating exercise. Uh, It's not as morbid as it sounds coming out of my mouth. I'm just realizing now. Um, But it's actually a a very helpful exercise to walk through a cemetery to look at the stones, to read the things that are written on them. And sure, there are engraved words and dates and stuff, and all of that testifies, so to speak, But have you noticed also that the art that's engraved on gravestones communicates something as well? You know, you'll you'll see gravestones engraved with symbols like the alpha and the omega, um, or a laurel wreath, or a dove, or a lit torch, or a hand with a finger pointing upwards. And all of these symbols speak to something, whether it be... Uh, 
um, just drawing your attention to eternality or victory or peace with God or the hope of heaven, you know, that, that's, where, that's where I'm going. This is what I'm waiting for. And I'm suggesting that these are sort of lasting testimonies, proclamations on the part of the deceased as to the hope that is within them. You know, it's one last final opportunity for them to, to speak to that. In the same way, to be buried in this cave in Canaan, this staked out little postage stamped real estate, in the yet to be possessed promised land, that's a, that's a very strong statement, isn't it, of Jacob's faith in the promises of God. He's determined to be there when his God fulfills his word. And he has no doubt that God will fulfill his word. It's not an if, it's a when. When this happens, he wants to be there. This cave communicates that this story will be continued. And Jacob wants to be there. Now, I said an empty cave. This particular cave is not empty, though it was technically when Abraham first purchased it as an act of faith. But I, I just wanted to take this opportunity to remind you that there's another cave in Canaan that today is truly empty. And in case you're thinking to yourself that Easter was so last week and that we're just moving on, heaven forbid that we would ever move on from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that empty tomb is also very powerful testimony to the fact that the story continues right that not even when it looks like it's over it's not over we we need to remember this this empty cave because that's the fuel for our faith in in the words of that classic chorus which i know you know it says because he lives i can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because i know oh oh he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. This is, this is the reason I can get out of bed in the morning. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead in a cave. But he's been risen. And he has been ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that's fuel, friends, for your faith. So whether you're here today as someone who, who's recently lost a loved one, or whether you are here today as someone who's frightened at the prospect of your own death. I, I trust that your, your faith and your hope will perhaps be ignited for the first time. I don't know. Or at least kindled by the strong word that's spoken by this empty Canaanite cave. The, because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, death is not the end of the story. It wasn't for him, and it's not for you. Now let's just look at a second signpost to the, to the future. We see this also in an emotional cortege 
an emotional cortege. That's the first uh, 14 verses of chapter 50. Forgive me. Cortege is your word of the day. It's another term for a funeral procession. It's kind of the hoity-toity word, which I chose only for the, the alliteration. So just overlook that, please. I'm talking about, of course, the, the line of cars with flags on the hoods that, that follows the hearse to the graveside. That's called a cortege. And that's what we have in the first 14 verses of chapter 50. So after commanding all of his sons about his burial, Jacob uh, lies back down on his bed. He breathes his last and was gathered to his people. And I just think that that's such a beautiful description of the death of one of the faithful servants of the Lord. And if you just notice that, how the, the Bible talks about the death of the saints, the people of God. Uh, it's, it's always so beautiful and so encouraging, so hopeful. Um, our death is described simply as sleep, rest, being gathered to our people. It's such a, such a, even that is a hopeful reminder that there is something that lies beyond death. Jacob dies at the good old age of 147. I just want you to notice all of the appropriate responses that we see to the death of Jacob. First, notice that Joseph falls on his face and wept over him and kissed his father. How, how appropriate to express one's love and grief at the same time. I hope that none of you ever feel any kind of pressure from a church or from other Christians to express only joy or celebration when a loved one dies. It'll be a celebration of life. And that's good. I don't, I don't mean to downplay that, but you, you should never be made to feel like it's inappropriate for you to mourn and grieve, to weep, even to, to wail at the loss of a loved one. Crying is appropriate. I'm here to reassure you. Tears and kisses, grief and honor, all of these are exactly the right responses to the death of a loved one. And Joseph, being the prime minister of Egypt, he's got access to the very best physicians and morticians in the land. So he, he makes arrangements for his father to be embalmed. And this is a very elaborate and expensive process that the Egyptians have, have mastered by this point in human history. They've mastered this for the preservation of dead bodies. Now, they, they do this, of course, to fit into their worldview of, of like the, the best life is the afterlife. And, and so you want to preserve people as best as possible for that. But they, they've developed this uh, elaborate process for preserving bodies. Uh, one surgeon would expertly cut a slit in the side of the body through which all of the organs would be carefully removed. And I don't know how much detail you want me to get into here. 
But basically, uh, they, the body cavity is going to be packed with certain materials and chemicals and perfumes that cause, you know, rapid dehydration, which drastically reduces the amount of decomposition. And um, again, lots of perfumes, lots of wrappings, that sort of thing. I'll fast forward all over all the gory details just to tell you that this process is extremely complex, extremely time consuming and costs a lot of money. But Joseph spares no expense for his father. Not to mention that all of this embalming, all of this preservation is going to allow him to carry out his father's wishes to, to make this long trip uh, to bring Jacob's body back to the land of Canaan. So even though embalming made that trip possible, this trip required permission. After all, Joseph is still a servant of Pharaoh. And so through an intermediary, Joseph appeals to Pharaoh for permission to, to carry out the obligation that he had towards his father. And Pharaoh, you can see, obliges. Not just that, but as we've seen this Pharaoh do lots of times before, he's incredibly generous, isn't he? He's, he's very um, accommodating, hospitable, which probably has a lot to do with, you know, how the Lord, through Joseph, saved his country, saved his citizens, and, and um, brought them through such difficult times of drought. I'm sure it has very much to do with that. And so not only is Joseph permitted to go, but Pharaoh is sending people from his own household to go on this trip. He's sending a delegation of the highest ranking officials in Egypt to accompany Joseph and his brothers and his father's household to Canaan. And then taking up the rear of the processional, Pharaoh has deployed all of his military chariots and horsemen. As the text says, and this is probably a bit of an understatement, it was a very great company. So as this emotional cortege makes its long journey, they stop along the way at the threshing floor of Atad. And I'm not exactly sure what the significance of this particular location was, but, but there Joseph and the entourage, they, they uh, engaged in sort of a formal time of mourning and lamentation for Jacob. Their lamentation was so great they wailed so loudly and so expressively that the inhabitants of that place felt it appropriate to rename the place. And here's what they are now calling it, Abel Mitzrayim, which translated means mourning of Egypt, the mourning of Egypt. So this, this is quite a thing, isn't it? And all in all, Joseph and his family and all of Egypt mourned Jacob for 70 days, which is only um, two days shy of what would be the appropriate mourning period for a pharaoh. Truly, this was a great man. This was a great man. Of course, one of the benefits of having looked at the life of Jacob from the very beginning 
is that we can understand now that Jacob's greatness has actually nothing to do with him. In fact, he was a scoundrel. He was a schemer. He was a heel grabber. You remember all of his tricks very well, I'm sure. But the Lord has dealt graciously with him. And now he's at a point where he is dying a man with strong faith. Everyone honored and respected him, not least his sons who fulfilled his wishes and laid him to rest at this cave at Machpelah. Now, you're probably wondering, well, how does this emotional cortege point us towards the future? How does it, how does it make us expect a continuation of this story? I hope that you don't think I'm stretching this too much. But if you can just take a step back and see what we're seeing here. What, is, what does this look like? Egyptians mourning a very great company of people leaving Egypt, heading to Canaan with an Egyptian army at their heels, so to speak. I don't know. I, I could be way off here. But that looks to me like an exodus. It, it's one of those things where, of course, you can see this a lot clearer on retrospect. But even in the, in the moment, it seems to be standing as a sort of foreshadowing of a time in the not-too-distant future when God is going to deliver his people with a, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's going to deliver Israel from Egypt. He's going to bring them out back into Canaan, into the land of promise. This is, a, this is an indication. I don't know how strong... It is to you, but it's at least an indication that this story is going to continue. This is a very powerful setup, I think, for the very next book of the Bible, where we read about this exodus. But even that momentous event that we'll see in Exodus, even that event is not an end in itself. Even that event is a signpost that is pointing us even further into the future, pointing us to an even greater exodus when the Lord Jesus Christ delivers his people from our slavery to sin and to death. So, so you can be sure that the best part of this story is yet to come. A third signpost in the passage that points to a future is a reminder of an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. I draw your attention to verses 22 to 24 of chapter 50. So we skip that. You've got to skip down past that wonderful part that my dad preached a couple of weeks ago. And we're fast forwarding all the way to the death of Joseph. I'm particularly interested here in, in what he says to his remaining brothers and no doubt to his sons in verse 24. He says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, 
to Isaac and to Jacob. And if you'll permit me, I want to just zoom in even further to, the, to that last little phrase in the verse. The part that goes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That triad of names of those first three patriarchs, that triad is repeated throughout the rest of the biblical storyline. Um, a ton of times in the Old Testament, especially, you come across that formula, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And whenever that is used, it's used as a sort of shorthand to describe God's everlasting covenant, his promises, his faithfulness in terms of his covenant towards one generation and then to the next. From one generation to the next, this covenant God is faithful. And all of that tends to be wrapped up from time to time in the little construction, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac. He was faithful to Jacob. And to all of them, he made very great and precious promises. And think of it this way. Let me give you just a little illustration, uh, see if this helps. You know the ABCs, right? The alphabet. Well, when we're referencing the alphabet, we don't say the whole alphabet. We say the first three. We say the, the big three. A, B, C. The, the rest are just kind of implied. And now instead of the alphabet, think about God's covenant. Think about his promises. They are to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are your AIJs, if we could put it that way. But, but even that implies a future for God's everlasting covenant. It doesn't end with J. It doesn't end with Jacob. There are further generations that are going to be the recipients of God's promises and his blessings. And we get just a little sampling of this truth. We get to see this played out just a little bit in this text. Jacob, uh, God's blessing does not end as soon as Jacob is dead. But the next generation and here Joseph is in the spotlight, Joseph experiences the blessing of God, doesn't he? And of course, we've seen this all throughout J Joseph's life in his story, that he is incredibly blessed by God. God was with him, helping him, establishing him, giving him success. But, but you can see it here at the end, and, and let me just show you a couple of more places. First of all, Joseph lives to see his children's children to the third and maybe fourth generation. That's a sign of a blessing in, in scripture. That fact, when, when that happens, that's held up as one evidence of the incredible blessing of God. So I think of uh, Psalm 128 verse 6 or Proverbs 17 verse 6. Joseph is granted the privilege of holding his great-grandchildren on his knees. He even takes a page out of his father's um, book, and he's following in his father's footsteps here. He's adopting the children of one of his grandsons as his own. We saw Jacob do this with Joseph's 
sons. And now Joseph is doing this to uh, the children of one of his grandsons. He's claiming them as his own. Do you see that in verse 23? I don't know if he also followed in his father's footsteps by playing favorites, but if so, you can hardly blame him for being drawn to one particular grandson named Macker. Because the name Macker means one who is sold. And Joseph's probably like, yeah, my man. I know what that's like. Another clear sign of the blessing and the favor of God was the fact that Joseph lived to the ripe old age of 110. Now, on the one hand, this falls very far short of Abraham and Isaac, who are living to like 175 and 180. It's even 37 years less than his father, Jacob. However, when you consider that at that time, in the Egyptian mind, in that culture, in that context, and this is attested, by the way, by multiple sources, the ideal age that they, they believed was ideal to achieve, you want to take a guess at what it was? 110 years. And I think the Lord is making a very powerful statement to the Egyptians that this Joseph, this Hebrew, your savior, he, he's been the object of God's favor and his blessing. Now, this, this is, may have been a confusing point for you, so let me just re recap. Sorry if I haven't expressed it well enough, but when you read Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when you read that lump together like that, that's covenantal language, okay? You're meant to think about God's faithfulness to keep his promises, not to just those first, the big three patriarchs, but just like A, B, C, go on to D, E, F, G, and the rest. Just like that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lead to Joseph and Manasseh and Macher and on and on down the line. Our God is faithful from one generation to the next. And this is, enough, this is yet one other sign I'm suggesting. It's a signpost that is pointing us towards a future. It's speaking about a future. And one thing will be certain about that future and by the way, are you, are you worried about the future? You know, when you're at home watching the news, when you're interacting even with, like, the fast food workers, are, are you really scared about the future? Well, if so, here's what you can be certain about. The, the future, of course, holds lots of uncertainty, but here's something you can be absolutely certain about. God will continue to be faithful. He will continue to have a people. And he will continue to be faithful to fulfill all of his promises. And very quickly, I want to show you a, a fourth signpost that says that this story is to be continued. And that is, 
an Egyptian coffin. See this in verses 25 to 26, right here at the end. Do you remember when we were first introduced to Joseph? In his youth, well, through his dreams, he was, he was taking on the role of a prophet. He was prophesying about what would take place in the future. He was speaking about the fact that his, his brothers and even his parents would bow down to him. Well, now here at the end of his life, he once again is playing the role of a prophet and he's revealing to his family that God will surely visit them. And again, that, that's language that continues to be used in the Old Testament, uh, this idea of God visiting. And whenever that language is used in Scripture, language about the Lord's visitation, it always refers to momentous events where God you know, shows up in a significant way for the salvation of his people and often for the judgment of his enemies. Well, Joseph's family needs to know that God will surely visit them and bring them up out of the land of Egypt and bring them back into the land of promise, the land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, this is an explicit reference to the Exodus. So if you weren't buying, you know, the oblique reference to the Exodus uh, under the second point, then I hope you can at least see it here. But, but notice that Joseph is speaking about an event that is still in the future. It's something that he has not yet seen with his own eyes, nor will he since he's about to die. In other words, Joseph has surety about the unseen. And, and I'm, I'm reconstructing it that way for you so that you'll understand that this is the very definition of faith. It's, it's to believe upon the things that you do not yet see, to be convinced of of that which God has promised, God has said, but yet does not appear in your eyes. That's faith, and Joseph acts in tremendous faith here at the end. And then he gives this command. He says, and when that happens, when our people possess the land that God has promised us, carry my bones up out of here. I want to be part of the exodus. I'm paraphrasing here. I want to, Joseph is saying, I want to be there when this goes down. And J Joseph likely knows that he's a national hero in Egypt. He's, he's going to be embalmed. He's going to be mummified. He's going to be placed in a coffin and laid in state, probably, you know, well on into the future. But Joseph is also testifying that Egypt is not his home. And so it's important that ultimately his bones are going to be carried up out of Egypt to his true home, which is with his people in the land of promise. So what an incredible man of God this Joseph was. He, he's well deserving of the spot that he, he holds there in the hall of faith. 
in Hebrews chapter 11. But do you know what's really interesting? Out of all of the things that the author to the Hebrews could have pointed to in Joseph's life that demonstrate his great faith, this is what the author chose. Hebrews 11 22. Of all the things you could say about Joseph, this is what the author to the Hebrews wants us to really highlight. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This, the, the very last verse of Genesis, is an example to us of tremendous faith. It's an example to us of what it looks like to live life and to face death, knowing that this is not the end of the story. To, to live life and to face, face death confident of a continuation, wherein every wrong is going to be righted, and everything is going to be redeemed and restored by the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. And, and all of the promises that God has ever made are going to come into full flower. And this, again, through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom every single one of these promises have their yes and amen. Friend, if, if you're not united to this Christ by faith, let me urge you today to believe on him. To abandon what it, what it is that you're holding on to as a, as a, as a lifesaver. Because it's, it's deflated, it's got a hole in it. Your, your only source of security is this only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is a sure and steady anchor for your soul. I, I encourage you today, urge you as, as best as I can to, to take Christ as your captain. To, to walk confidently with him into the future. And, and you can face uncertain days. I know you've got a lot of those ahead of you, but you can face them because he lives. Because he died and, and he, he died for your sins to offer you full forgiveness and pardon. And then he rose again for your justification. And today he lives. And if you want to know more about what it looks like to believe in Jesus and to follow him, to commit your life to him, then I, I want you to just please come up to this front pew here right after the end of the service. And there's going to be folks there that would love to, to help you, to point you to the Savior, to pray with you. That would, that would be the most important thing that you could do today. So there you have it. There, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, foundations, we've called it. But don't be thrown off by that final period, okay? If you want, I don't know if you do this in your Bible, but uh, feel free to just take a pen and add a couple of dots at the end of that. Because this story is to be continued. Amen. Amen.